I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is the award-winning documentary filmmaker, one of the world's leading natural history filmmakers in the world, who won the Oscar last year for his work with the documentary My Octopus Teacher, which was a mega sensation on Netflix. And you really have to question yourself if you haven't spent the time to watch it. He is also the co-founder of the Sea Change Trust, and he through his work on the Sea Change Project, shares his love for nature with others in order to create some kind of change so that we can integrate and be closer to nature, not just dealing with it as a resource or dealing with it as an external entity from who we are. His new book is called Underwater Wild, which will be available globally in November 16th, 2021. And he, in his filmmaking, has mostly followed some of the more interesting animal species to just follow their behavior, which I think was the beauty of his film, My Octopus Teacher, where he follows the unbelievable story of almost a one year of the life of an octopus that he gets really, really close to as he honors his pact to dive 360 times a year. My view of my octopus teacher has been that he somehow, Craig was not our teacher and neither was the octopus actually. When I watched that film, I felt that I was my teacher as guided by Craig and the octopus and by mother nature herself. Such an inspiring work. And I hope that today you will be inspired as we dive through it together with Craig Foster. I will start by saying thank you because of course the documentary is incredibly inspiring. And the way you tell the story, I felt made it not just about her story, but about your story, which I think was wonderful. But in an interesting way, you were teaching us, but I have to say you were also letting us learn because I also learned other things that you didn't mention in your sort of closing remarks, if you want, which I felt was fascinating because I could learn what you told me. I could learn how you learned from her, but I could also allow myself to learn myself, right? Which was really, really fascinating. And I want to, I want to go with you through some of my learnings and hopefully get some of your learnings and and, you know, tell me if some of what I understood is wrong. By the way, if any of our listeners hasn't seen my octopus teacher, where have you been living? Like, what are you doing with your life? This is an absolute homework. You have to do it right now before you even continue with the podcast. So I want to start with, I've been trying to get into nature for a very long time, Craig. I have had a very long career in the mainstream, corporate world, always in the spotlight, even my work here on slow-mo, you know, I have to be visible in the world, you know, my books and so on. 
And when you started your film, you basically were led to that place. Do you believe that? I mean, was it, it felt that it wasn't your choice. It felt that you were overworked, a little burned out. You needed some kind of a connection outside that pressure. And that led you to that place. Was that the case? Yes. You know, I was very lucky to grow up as a child right next to the great Atlantic Ocean. So my place I always go to when I'm feeling very stressed is the ocean and the seashore, because that's my great love from when I was literally from a few days after I was born. My parents took me into the ocean. So it was a natural place to go um, when I was feeling um, overwhelmed and burnt out, as you say. You live near the ocean. And if you don't mind me saying, I'm asking for my own self, you then engage in all of that work that stresses you and burns you out, which I think is a typical story for all of us humans. And only when we get to that point when it's like, oh, so much, do we go back to the ocean, do we go back to nature? And I struggle with that myself because I have the ability to probably take a lot more time in nature. But then when I get out in nature, I start to complain about the ants and about the, you know, the no air conditioning. <laughs> you know, so how do I change that? Wow. Okay. Interesting question. I think you have to have at least some sort of curiosity. I mean, you probably do have a curiosity, but if you just want to go out to be in nature and have no, it's good to have a little bit of a goal at first, something that will overcome some of the the ants or the heat or the cold or whatever. So it's a good idea to have, you know, something in mind, something you're looking for, something um, that will pique your curiosity to take you past the being uncomfortable. And then, of course, be properly equipped. And then also to realize that we designed as humans to be outside. We designed to deal with heat. We designed to deal with cold. And just take the time to allow your body to adapt. So it will adapt to the heat. It will adapt to the cold. And then don't push yourself too much. So maybe start by going for shorter periods and then slowly building up. Don't go, you know, the whole day and get ravaged by insects or the heat or the cold. You just slowly build it up and you get become more and more accustomed to being, being in the wild. So it's mm. a slow process of allowing your yourself, which has become like a domesticated primate, to just unleash a little bit of the wildness so that, that is part of your deep uh, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. I remember now when you actually started the movie, you were saying the water is so cold and you didn't wear any wetsuits or whatever, and that over time you, it starts to become energizing. It starts to become, you're okay with it, right? Which to me was also very interesting. The idea of forcing yourself to be in that cold to start, I think is the key to begin a journey like this. I want to talk a bit about her and I'll jump to the very, 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 very touching moments for me. We'll go back to her life, but I want to talk about her death because I have to say this was the one moment in the movie which, where I was saying, Craig, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? She's being eaten at by the scavengers in her last day. And you say to yourself, I want to help her. I want to hold her and push them away, but I won't. 
Can you explain that? What was going on? Um, well, you must understand that when she starts to lay her eggs and look after her young, her whole focus is on that. And she's no longer interested in interacting with me. And then it's a slow but quite fast process from there to her death. But she's giving a large part of her body to those eggs and she stops eating. So it's a kind of a, it's a thing that octopuses do. They, as soon as they, you know, lay eggs, they begin their death. So you have to respect that process. So I didn't feel that she needed my, it's not like a human that needs comfort in that process. She needs the space to then be an octopus in the last days, minutes, seconds of her life. It's not for me to impose my emotions upon the end of her life. And she was quite clearly separated herself when she laid the eggs and sorted all her focus on her young. And then I gave her that space and respect. So it wasn't for me to start looking after my own emotions uh, in that in that time. But isn't that what we humans do all the time? You know, there is, I mean, there was an incredible respect for life and death in your decision. It's like, this is the cycle, right? This is how how it unfolds. She lays her eggs, the, the octopuses hatch in the wild, hundreds of thousands of them, as you said, beautiful, beautiful shot. And then, you know, that's it. That's the rest of her journey. And we humans somehow tend to resist everything that contradicts our emotional desires, if you want. But you, you could make that decision to say it's her journey, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's also the feeling you get from the animal. You can feel if an animal... I, I tended... I would allow her to come and make contact with me, but I wouldn't go and make contact with her. That's a general, a good idea with wild animals, uh, is not to presume that they might want to make contact. Most wild animals do not want to make contact with humans. Very rarely that you get a curious animal that wants to do that. So it's a good idea not to impose your physicality on animals at any point. It's a good idea to, if they happen to want to make contact, then to allow that, but not even to encourage it. So you can pretty much feel, if you know an animal that well, that it, it doesn't, they generally don't like to be interfered with. And then the, the shot before that, when, so when it comes to contact, you mostly threw out the documentary, you know, it would have its arm or its suckers on your hand or maybe your arm and so on. But that one last shot after she was playing with the fish is when she literally hugs you. I mean, it was, you were holding her in your arms and she was stuck to your chest. And that moment to me was like, oh my God, is that, I don't know if I may say this again, I said, I felt certain things, they may be wrong, but it, to me, I, it felt that she was almost aware that this is her last day before her death sentence. She's going out, she's playing with the fish, which is something we didn't see elsewhere in the, in the film. Then she hugs you, which is your last human contact for her. And then she, you know, the next morning, it's her mating day and, and the process starts. Is that how it was? It's impossible to know what an animal like that is feeling. It's a cephalopod. It thinks and feels in an entirely different way, in many ways, to humans. A lot of what goes on is highly mysterious. And it's, um, I tend not to try to put 
human senses or human feelings onto the process. And it's a, a large oh, yeah. part of the work, a large part yeah. of the work I do and a large part of being in the ocean and experiencing these incredible stories that come out of deep mother nature. It's like a large part of it is just mysterious. I can't explain it very easily. It's doesn't make that much sense statistically. So <laughs> yeah. I'm just very thankful for the processes. And it's very hard to start to put clear human stories in place of that. It, it just, uh, it's impossible to know. And it's almost like a giving up. It's a giving up to the mystery and the wonder of this wild place. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to sort of draw the analogies to me in her place. I mean, death sadly has been part of my journey when I lost my wonderful son. And, you know, understanding uh, how that process of her dying is so beautiful in a very interesting way it's, is where I've, I've been very touched by the, by the documentary, I have to say, even though the whole thing is just stunning. But that idea of live, you called it what? Live fast, die young. Yeah, yeah. It's a full life. She lives it fully, day by day, even though alone. And, you know, when it's time to go, it's time to go. And, you know, there is no clinging, no attachment. And you support that so beautifully. And it's just so inspiring for me. Yes, it's like, I guess it's different. Human death... We don't know when it's going to come, but it's different for octopus. Their death is programmed into their whole makeup. So they know when the mating starts, when the, the egg laying happens, that's the time to start the death process. And that's just programmed into their existence. We don't have that. So it's very different in a way. Uh, they could carry on eating and survive, but that's how they how they do it. It's the octopus way. <laughs> so it's not a surprise. And they know, I want to say they know, it's just the, the process that happens. So it's very different. And it is powerful to see that whole life and death process unfolding like that in this place. And this is a very predator dense place. So there's a lot of life and death going on every day, actually, in the sea forest. Lots of animals eating lots of other animals and um, short lives, some long lives. I mean, the sharks, for instance, live up to 35 years. So they far live far longer, but they're far more vulnerable than the octopus because they breed far slower. They reach maturity after a long time. Their eggs get predated very easily. So actually they are much, much more vulnerable and much more endangered than octopuses. So the predators are actually, you know, the if there's a lot of predators and you know a, a system is healthy, if you start seeing those predators going down, then you worry. This is your very first documentary under the water, right? No, no, no I've done quite a few. Okay. So I've worked uh, a film on sharks. I've worked a number of film on crocodiles, diving with crocodiles. So I've done quite a few films underwater, yeah. Oh my God, okay. How can we find those? I didn't have the thought of searching for others. I'm searching tonight. Are they online available for us to see? Um, they, you know, the funny thing about being a filmmaker, your films are generally owned by the broadcasters. Yeah. So you're at the mercy of, of those. Um, you might be able to 
see some of them. Uh, titles are Into the Dragon's Lair is one of the crocodile films. Um, Touching the Dragon is another crocodile film. The uh, Shark Man is the shark film. It's quite old now. So I, I'm not actually sure if they are available online or not. Wow. That is incredible that we, we're going to start a movement as the slow-mo listeners and say, we want to see them <laughs> and you know, see how they respond to that. And, you know, in, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but of course it's your first Oscar, but any other awards before that? It's always a team, you know, teams are making these films. <laughs> and I've had, a, you know, tremendous teams I've worked with over the years. I've spent almost 30 years making films, mostly with my brother, uh, Damon. So we made 25 films together over the years, and I think we won about 65 international awards, but never the Oscar oh, or, wow. ba or BAFTA or anything like that. So most times, you know, these uh, wildlife documentaries stay within the realm of documentary. And this is uh, what was wonderful and difficult about this. It broke through a lot of layers and broke into other realms. I mean, it completely took us by surprise. Um, normally, you know, it's hard to get people to watch documentaries, but this was uh, unprecedented. And also thanks to Netflix and the extraordinary platform that they have, obviously. And the film could easily not have seen the light of day. I mean, we were turned down a first few times and, you know, it's, it's often just a being fortunate or some one person in this case uh, saw, you know, Sarah Edelson saw the potential of this and championed the film. Otherwise it probably wouldn't have been seen. Oh my God. <laughs> so I, first time I saw it, I saw Netflix pushing it on me. It was like up there at the top of like, watch this, you know, they have this little half of the screen, the top half is something. And I'm like, nah, yeah, I love nature documentaries, but who wants to, to see a documentary about an octopus, right? And then you start talking and there is that image of it hiding behind the shells. And I'm like, ooh, that's interesting, cute little thing. And then the whole thing really draws you in. I, I don't know why, really, because you're there almost narrating the story. So, you know, those award-winning theatricals or, or movies where there are only two characters in a room talking to each other. And I loved that. It was like you're sort of saying what you felt and what she felt. And then you keep getting drawn into it. The shark bits. Like, this is the most amazing, I think, marine shots I've ever seen when she's fighting the sharks and you have to go up and breathe and so on. It's so unusual and wonderful. But I have to say, Netflix must have done something really to get us to see it. Otherwise, it would have been buried with other nature documentaries. So good luck for us. But uh, I'm hoping also you felt there was a, I mean, did you feel there was a bit of a different luck surrounding this one? compared to other ones that you made before? Well, the difference here, Mo, uh, <laughs> um, uh, is I wasn't trying to make a film. <laughs> All I was trying to do was yeah. understand this animal, get inside her life. And I had the privilege of spending a long, long time getting to know this environment before I met her. And I had the privilege of just going in every day uh, with her for a year. So you normally don't have that kind of time or energy to make a film. So it was done in a different way. And it's, it took years to edit the film, trying to get it right and to try and get this feeling across. 
So it was made in a different way to a normal film. Perhaps that some of that came through. It's just a pure passion and, lo- and love for this environment, for this animal, and trying to just explain what that's like, as opposed to now I'm going to try and, you know, a wonderful team, incredible directors, Pippa and James, incredible executive producers, you know, everybody, what is different is that every person, and there were a large team involved, were just doing it purely for the passion, just for the absolute passion of it. And the combined hive mind that went into making the film was just so much passion and love for it that I think it comes through on the screen, you know. I feel I'm just really, I'm just the, it feels a bit odd in many ways because I went into nature and I was accepted in some way and she told me many, many stories and I just came and retold those stories. And I'm just a sort of a messenger and sometimes it can be confused that the message and the messenger get confused. I don't feel I've done too much. I've just been fortunate enough to have spent a lot of time in the wild and just told her story in the best way that I can. And that's it, you know. And so it's a, she's the, the magnificence here. The emphasis should be on her. And I wanted to be out of it, actually. I didn't want to be in the film, but... The directors convinced me to be in it and to speak about it. It obviously helps the story, but it's all about the great mother nature. It's all about this wonderful cephalopod, this incredible octopus. But I guess it helps to have the human element in there. I'd personally, I'd rather not be in if I could have, I must say, to be honest with you. That came across so clearly. And I'll have to say, Craig, this was my biggest learning in the entire documentary. There were two things that really, really touched me. Of course, other than the story with your son and the idea of, you know, associating that with her hatching her eggs and so on. We'll come back to that. But the the two things that really, really touched me was the idea that this was never your intention, which in my mind is mostly where big things happen in life. You just go on a journey and you follow, you flow, and then the journey takes you somewhere and something amazing happens. And that secondly, that you really appeared on the screen as if, guys, this is not about me. The camera shouldn't be on me. And once again, this is, I think, the nature of everything big that happens in life is that you do it for another. And to me, it was so shocking because it actually did get me, and I have had many glory moments, if you want, in my life, such big successes, you know, where I celebrated or on a stage or, you know, there is a big launch or whatever. And if you got me to sit back and think about those moments, and I promise you, none of them were my doing at all. You just get led into a path and you follow. And you almost have no other way but to follow because when you look at your story with her, it's like it's almost impossible unless you couldn't get into the water that day curiosity was so killing you that you were going back every day and and just (laughs) the story she's telling it as you're saying and i think that's that's such a learning for most humans that we think so big of ourselves that we're the ones that make things happen but in reality things that are supposed to happen are going to happen through us is maybe my biggest learning actually yeah that's very interesting and i think the the thing about that what i love about nature is that you just never know what you're going to encounter. It's not like going to 
the supermarket. You know you're going to go there, you're going to get your coffee, you're going to buy your things, you're going to get in your car. When you go into nature, you just don't know what you're going to encounter. So you're always encountering something unusual. It's a dance with mystery. And that's so much more interesting than our human-made lives in many ways. So it's a funny thing for me because I I enjoy the human world, of course, as well. And, you know, speaking to people like you is absolutely fascinating. But the pull is really to just be in the big mother nature for for most of the time. And it's, it's hard to find the time when you're trying to live life and feed your family and do all the things it takes to <laughs> to run a life. It's it's quite frustrating, actually. So it's about trying to find that balance. And I think a lot of us are finding that difficult, including myself even, to find that balance where we still have a deep relationship with the world around us, with our life support system, and can you know do the things necessary to keep a roof over our heads. It's a hell of a challenge. I totally agree. It's so interesting that you say that. So one of my projects that I worked on uh, last year, posted a little bit on social media, but it's now a book that I'm working on, is that idea of what I call half monk, which is to basically balance being engaged in the modern world as a modern world person who has to do things and meet people and discuss stuff and appear on podcasts and stuff like that. And then the other side, which is to somehow connect to the rest, right? Connect to yourself, connect to nature, be in silence, right? And it is so challenging. It's so challenging because life sort of peaks, you know, it just takes from you. At the time you least expected or the time you most want to be in nature or alone, someone calls and says, hey, we have a meeting. Like, come on, man, you know, leave me alone. (laughs) I don't want that right now. Did you find a way? I mean, I felt that when post-Oscars, you tried to take a little bit of a quiet time. Was that your way of saying, hold on, I need that balance back? Absolutely. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, Mo, that the most difficult part of this whole process was when the film came out, and there was so much interest and thousands of emails and wonderful, you know, messages and artworks from all over the world. And then winning these awards and all the attention and uh, having to respond to that actually took me away from nature in quite a strong way. And I started to lose that connection. It was very, it's very disturbing when you have a wonderful relationship with the wild. And you start to lose that. It's very, very disturbing. So I had to actively try everything I could to reestablish that and try to go away to little retreats. And, but it's not easy because you, you've now put this thing out and people are expecting <laughs> all sorts of things. So you, you feel bad at the same time. There's a responsibility, there's a pressure, there's possibilities for conservation, all sorts of things. Mm. But it's, it's a hell of a dilemma because the core of my work, I literally cannot speak. I would not be able to speak properly to you and express my feelings if I'm not connected to the wild, because that's where all the stories come. That's my inspiration. So it's very hard to articulate any of these things unless I'm actually connected, because then I'm just, you know, making it up. Yeah. Um, so I've really had to work very, very hard at creating boundaries. And each day I'm planning first, okay, when am I going to get in the water? What am I going to do? How am I going to 
interact with this wild system. And then after that, trying to plan, you know, the rest of the day around meetings or Zooms or computer work or that kind of thing. So I've tried to put obviously my family and Mother Nature first and then try to fit the other things in because otherwise it just starts to overwhelm and you you lose perspective. I mean, I think what people forget is that we are born completely wild. When that child is born, it's a totally wild creature expecting a wild existence. That's how we've lived for most of our time on this planet, as creatures of the wild. And it's a real shock for the human psyche to be thrown into this industrialized planet. So it's no you know, surprise that people are very stressed and finding it, many people find it very difficult because we design to be in big wild spaces with large numbers of wild creatures and plants. And we designed to be with small numbers of humans. I don't think we've had the time to adjust fully to this strange place we find ourselves in. This is fascinating. Fascinating in every possible sense of the word. I mean, in an amazing way, you're what most people would live their entire life trying to achieve you're saying that was the biggest challenge I'm facing. I need to be out in nature. Thank you for the awards. Thank you for the responsibility and the ability to make a change and and hopefully make the planet better. But I need to go back and connect. I mean, you said that and it just, I took a deep breath. And then you say you put family and mother nature first. Now that is a very interesting trick, okay? I have to say, I don't do that. My day is like a a, a stew of things, like, you know, a meeting followed by meditation, followed by a a two hours. It's like a a mess, (laughs) total mess. I mean, people listening to us now will go like, but you said you're slow-mo. Yes, I'm slower than the current load that I'm carrying, but, but it is, it is, it's a mess. It's really interesting. But I think the other side of this, which is shocking for me is, if you don't mind, I will quote you on one of the books I'm working on now about stress, because in reality, I'm I'm writing a chapter called Mentally Stressed. And I realized that what you just said is gold. It's, we are not connected to mother nature. We're not made for this industrial world at all. And so suddenly the way we deal with it is just almost a constant panic attack. And perhaps the right way to handle that is to take breaks don't make that industrial world your habitat. Make your habitat your natural habitat and go visit, right? Go visit to the industrial world, do what you necessarily have to do and come back. That's so eye-opening, Craig. This so inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, it's, a great, it's a great pleasure. Yeah. Which I think takes me to how you ended the documentary, which, of course, normally your last words, at least in my books, my last sentence is sort of the summary of what I wanted to say where you said you are part of this place, not just a visitor. That was so inspiring. Again, I, you know, I, I cry when I watch those things, <laughs> not very manly, I know, but it's such a simple way of describing it, that we are part of this place. Even though most of the shots of your documentary were sort of, you're the alien in that space. Like you're the alien being, you're probably the one that the fish are looking at and going like, oh, what's that? That's an interesting new fish, right? And yet you've managed somehow to make yourself part of it. How do we get to that? I think, you know, the, the interesting thing, Mo, is that 
for most of our time on this planet, and our species have been here for 300,000 years, approximately. Up till not very long ago, everybody would have felt completely part of wild nature. They wouldn't have understood the separation that we feel today. Uh, So it's a trauma, it's a shock to be separated from the great mother that's looked after us since the beginning of time. And the only way to reconnect is by just visiting again and again and again. And also small things like, of course, time with family is a very primal activity. So your, your time with your family, time with close friends, many other primal activities that reinforce who we are and our wild nature make a, make a huge difference. But also to establish some kind of not just being in nature and going for a walk and listening to music or something like that. It's but establishing a relationship with the insects in your backyard, with the birds, taking curiosity, taking care in their lives. What are they up against? How do they survive? What are their behaviors? So it's stepping a little bit into that other world. And then occasionally, I mean, these times of feeling the non-separation are moments of grace. It's not like I'm feeling that the whole time at all. I wish I I was, but I'm simply not. But it is the most extraordinary feeling to have that. It's freedom. It really is freedom, feeling that being part of that place and being accepted there. But it comes from knowing it deeply. It comes from knowing where these animals live, their secret lives there. And it comes from lots of time spent around them and lots of time being very curious about their extraordinary lives. I had that same feeling last night, actually. Again, so this is such an inspiring conversation. So I'm, I'm in the Dominican Republic right now in a, in a small place called Cabarete. And the restaurant where I go have dinner is a 15 minutes walk, but you have to walk through really dirt roads in nature. And I, after dinner, I was walking back. It's pitch dark. You can see the trees around you and then you can see the sky with beautiful stars that I never really see anyway. And I found myself walking out. I was in the restaurant writing after dinner and there was a loud family next to me. So I put my headphones on and just play some Iron Maiden. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, you know, heavy metal in, in my head. Yeah, so so most of what you guys read comes from Iron Maiden. That's, that's such a bad thought. <laughs> a little bit of quiet music, thought. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, I'm, I'm walking back to the Airbnb, and there is still Iron Maiden in my ears, and my phone is lit. And I was like, what are you doing? Three, four minutes in, I was like, what are you doing? And I removed the headphones, switch off the, the light of the phone, put it in my pocket. And suddenly nature glows. All of those sounds of the insects and the night birds and the stars and the sky, I was almost crying. And in my mind, I think the message which you repeated now was that I was just blocking all of this. And we do that so often in our modern day life. We just say, we don't want this. We want the air conditioner. We want that protected environment. We want to be in the city and just to allow ourselves to stay longer in the cities. Let's have pubs and theaters and museums and so on. When in reality, what we actually need is to go out there and not block it and connect to it. I love the thought that we are part of it. We are part of it. I think it's very 
different than the way I thought about it. I actually thought until I heard that sentence, and I, of course, I watched the documentary again yesterday night. When I heard that sentence again, I was like, yeah, I'm not just visiting. As a matter of fact, I should be visiting the other side. I think that's so eye-opening. Well, even if you, wherever you are, what people don't realize is that the biodiversity, which is the, the enormous number of species of animals and plants on this planet, is allowing you and I to breathe from second to second. Wherever we live, no matter where we are, we're literally breathing in the living system of this planet. Great Mother Nature is allowing us to stay alive from second to second. Every single piece of food we eat is being provided by her. She's our life support system on every single level. So our lives have made us think we're living independent of nature, and that's the biggest joke. Every second of our existence is made possible by her. Hmm. So every single political, social, all those issues are only possible because you've got this extraordinary foundation, ecological foundation that's keeping everything in place. And we're slowly chipping away at her, thinking we'll be fine. And that's the trouble about this disconnection. That's the horror and the fear is that if you start disconnecting, you start thinking that you can live independent of nature. And that's the biggest mistake we can possibly make. And climate change and biodiversity loss is throwing that in our faces now. And if we continue in the way we are, it's going to get more and more extreme. So it's so vital that we understand our place in this great planet that we are on, that we are inseparable from it, even though we might feel separate. Each breath, everything, we just, it's in our hearts, it's in our souls, it's in every part of us. We are literally, we are wilderness made. We are ocean heart, we are earth soul, we are just completely enwrapped in wild nature, even though we might feel disconnected, we can't. We're wild creatures from birth to death, just under the skin. So, and mm. she is, is, is our heartbeat, you know, she's our blood and we, it's dangerous to, to think otherwise, actually. That's amazing. I know you started the Sea Change Project after the documentary, and there is a book coming out, I think in November that documents the whole My Octopus Teacher thing. Correct. So can you tell us a bit about those? What other projects are you working on and how do you think those will benefit us to learn and benefit Mother Nature? So I think what I've said is this, you know, the greatest threat to our planet is this cooling of the human heart towards nature. Oh my God, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. It's not the climate change, it's the cooling of the human heart towards nature. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. So what we're trying to do with this new book coming out now, Underwater Wild, is to just express the magnificence of her and our deep love and try to instill this enchantment with nature back into people's lives. And people, the reactions have been incredible so far. People are so ready to understand and to have, and we need hope. I mean, there's a lot of frightening things going on in the world and we need hope. So a lot of these stories are about hope and about the power of mother nature to transform and our organization, Sea Change, Sea Change Project, there are nine of us, but we work with a lot of incredible scientists and other storytellers, is about 
showing the wonders, not only of the ocean, but of the, the sea forest here and, and nature herself. So we, we're working on a number of projects to put protection measures in place, but at the same time, you know, not leave people out of the equation. People are part of nature and they need to be looked after as well. So it's not about people versus nature. It's about how can we actually change, mm. change hearts? How can we warm the human heart towards this incredible life support system that's kept us going for so long? That's amazing. And the book is out in uh, November? Yes, the book is coming out in America through a wonderful HMH, HarperCollins Publishers. Uh, it's also coming out in Australia, mm -hmm. I believe, um, Korea, maybe China, uh, in Germany. So it's a lot of the stories of the other animals. It's not just the octopus. I mean, you know, there are many other animals that we've had tremendous uh, interactions with and learned so much. These animals are our teachers. And we're just telling their stories. So again, as you say, it's about nature. It's about her, not about us. We're just the, the messengers for this wonderful world. You're an amazing messenger, Greg. I, I don't say this very often, but there are a few people in life, oh, not few, but not too many that leave me so inspired and completely change my direction of looking at life. And I think you're one of them. I would want to talk to you for at four and a half hours, but now I know that you like nature more. So, uh, <laughs> so I think it's only, <laughs> it's only the right thing to do to say, this was so, so inspiring. I'm so grateful that you gave us the time. I think there is a lot to think about in what you said, but maybe you should now go and do more of what you do so that we can get more inspired. I'm, I'm really grateful for your time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Greg. Uh, just an absolute pleasure speaking to you, wonderful speaking to you, and thank you for your time and your passion and your interest in this work and for all that you're doing as well. Uh, you're, a, you're a wonderful soul. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for all of you listening, I, I think you should rewind this and listen again. I think there have been so many gold nuggets said here that really require us to review a little bit, reflect, and, and maybe see how we can change our approach to, to life and to nature, to our own choices of projects that change the world, to our own what comes into our calendar first. I really think there is so much to learn here. And I'm very grateful that you listened and joined us today. I hope that you spread the message, get others to listen to this incredible conversation and uh, reach out, send me a message on social media, tell me what else you would like me to talk about. And meanwhile, I will remind you that perhaps what Craig is doing is making sure that in the madness of the modern world, there is a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.